From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, April 1st. Renewable energy projects like solar are expanding on the Navajo Nation. It's an important step for the reservation to create sustainable power. The region desperately needs clean energy and revenue. The latest project is a solar farm on the Utah side of the Navajo Nation. But just because it's renewable doesn't mean it's without controversy. Justin Higginbottom reports on the fight over land in the area. Linda Keems lives in Red Mesa. It's a dispersed community on the northern edge of the Navajo Nation. We live at a place where it's so beautiful. I mean, we have a 360 view. To the north is Blanding, Moab. From her property, she can see mountains in every direction. She was raised here, herding sheep as a girl. Really pretty. You know, it's it's like a heaven on earth. But last year, and only by chance, she says she learned this landscape would be changing. I found out through the Navajo Times, April 7th, 2021. I just so happened to pick it up, and this was on the front page. There was a photo of Navajo Nation President Jonathan Nez signing a lease agreement with the Navajo Tribal Utility Authority, or NTUA, for the Red Mesa Tapaha Solar Generation Plant. The 70-megawatt project will be built on around 500 acres of land in Red Mesa. Keems might have welcomed the project. She says her area sees frequent power outages. But this was to be built right in the middle of an area that her family's livestock has grazed for generations. And I was shocked. And I asked around, I asked my aunt, and I said, do you guys know what this is? It seemed no one had, even though her family has legal grazing permits. The area isn't only important for livestock. Keem says it's a verdant island among the red sand and white rock. There are ceremonial herbs and snake dens. She's showing me a bird's eye view of the land over Zoom. You know, the the Navajos believe that, you know, even where the wind, they call this a wind trail. You can kind of see the dunes where the wind go through. I mean, that's considered sacred. Even where the wind travel. For Keems, it's another example of an NTUA project that she doesn't think will benefit locals. Only four megawatts of power produced here will go to Navajo Nation communities. The remaining heads elsewhere, like St. George. I don't think we get the fair share that whatever money that's generated within San Juan County goes into the pot, and we don't we don't have that the assistance like Arizona or New Mexico get. And it seems like there are we're all the Utahs or San Juan counties always excluded. Here's Jessica Kitso. She's with the Environmental Protection Group, Tona Zona Ani, which means Sacred Water Speaks in Diné. We're an organization that openly supports renewable energy, but this project is a very good example of how even renewable energy can be just as impactful on people's health on people's emotional state, mental state, just as much as like fossil fuels. It just shows like the failures of how projects are implemented. She says many on the Navajo Nation have been trained to look at energy projects with a skeptic's eye, even if they are built by tribal-owned groups like NTUA. They've just been burned too many times before. I would say within the past maybe five years, is when people are actually starting to think like, wait a second, you know, this whole energy sector on the Navajo Nation, we've been a part of uranium, coal, natural gas and oil, hydrogen, helium, 
we've been a part of all of these different developments and we're still within lifetimes we're not becoming any more economically stable arash moalami is the deputy general manager for ntua generation they handle renewable energy projects on the navajo nation and he says the solar farm at red mesa will help residents as an enterprise of the nation the revenue that's derived from these projects goes back into our utility and we then use that revenue to help keep our rates stable and not raise our rates and also to use that money to connect other families that don't have electricity on the Navajo Nation with electricity. He says there'll be two scholarships offered annually to the Red Mesa community for the life of the project. About 90% of the workers hired will be Navajo and it will provide the nation with tens of millions in revenue and wages. Mualami says the process for leasing the land was transparent. It involves first meeting with the chapter house and identifying an area. Then they get a list of all grazing permit holders on that parcel. And that is given by the chapter and the chapter official and the grazing official. And once we get that, we go through the process of obtaining consent from the list of names that were given from the chapter and the chapter grazing official. He says NTUA then meets and gets consent from everybody holding grazing permits. Compensation can be awarded. And then a biological and cultural survey is done. We have 859 employees total, of which 98% are Navajo. So we understand the sensitivities of grazing home site leases and whatnot. So, you know, we're, we're trying to be accommodating as possible. And that's why we try to go through the, you know, the process that's laid out by the, by the nation and by the local communities. And we thought we did, and we believe we still did. We, we think this project will benefit not just the local community, but the Navajo Nation as a whole. Keem says this isn't the process that was followed. The solar farm plan had been discussed since 2019 without notifying her and her family. After they discovered the plan for the solar farm last year, they went to their chapter house and protested. She showed me a document from that meeting that rescinded the 2019 resolution, withdrawing 700 acres for the project. That document says that NTUA had approvals from two permit holders, but it lists seven other permit holders that hadn't been notified. She shows me a list of 15 grazing permittees. It's unclear how many have livestock and are active, but it's more than who was contacted. Like other inheritance on the Navajo Nation, grazing permits are passed down through the mother's side. Keem's mother got hers from her grandmother, and since Keem's mother has passed, she says she now has rights to that permit. My maternal grandma was really very traditional. And so that's that's how she held this land. And she she knew where to graze. And she was, you know, she wasn't educated. And so when she passed, we had a lot of sheep and cows and horses. And when she passed, it just everything just kind of blew away. You know, we don't have as much sheep or horses anymore. Based on that, whatever little we have from our mother, our grandmother, we want to hold on to it because we were young then, back then when this land was in abundance, you know, and now that we're at that age, what are we going to, you know, preserve for our kids? But construction has started. The sparse vegetation has been cleared, leaving a smooth space of sand. When I first, you know, started seeing this clearance, you know, of the land, I didn't want to come home. I, you know, I drive through there and it was really hard to see that we couldn't do anything. You know, what my grandma used to hold dearly to heart. At one point, I just, I just couldn't drive back. It felt like someone died, you know, mourning, grieving for a death, you know, 
over death. The solar farm will start generating power this summer, but her and other grazing permittees' concerns remain unresolved, like the issue of sustainable energy on the reservation. Justin Higginbottom for KZMU News. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest local coverage. Plans to transform a mobile home park into apartments are taking shape. That means current residents are weighing their options. Sophia Fisher of The Times Independent has more. I mean, kind of the big headline is that there is another mobile home park in downtown Moab that is going to get redeveloped um, and turned into higher density housing. There is the Dickerson Mobile Home Park at 238 South, 400 East, which currently has 20 trailers, 15 of which are occupied, and it is slated for redevelopment into the Lost Springs Apartments, which is going to be an 80-unit complex uh, with parking and a clubhouse and, and a pool or a hot tub. Um, this comes in the wake of several high-profile mobile home redevelopments this past winter, which often were, have been raised to make room for townhouses, which more likely than not are going to be quite pricey. Mm. Um, but the Lost Springs development actually received unanimous approval from the Planning Commission on March 10th. And Planning Commission Chair Kaya Marienfeld says that the difference here hinges on the fact that Lost Springs will be composed of apartments, not townhomes or condominiums, which she said should keep the price range much more within the reach of locals, folks mm-hmm. who live here full time and hopefully are employed here full time. And also, you know, the city has been working on an active employment ordinance, which would guarantee a certain percentage of all new development um, has to house <laughs> the local workforce, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's might be part of their reasoning as well. Exactly. So it's actually interesting. This lot is split between two different zones, the C5 zone, which has 68 of the 80 units, Mm -hmm. and then the R3 zone, which has the remaining 12. And only the R3 zone would be subject to this ordinance. There are 12 units in the R3 zone, so it would be a percentage of those 12 units would be deed restricted for locally employed folks. So not the entire development, just a portion of the development. And I did ask why it ended up this way. And I talked to the applicant, um, Josh Godfrey, and he actually said he would have preferred to spread units more evenly between Mm -hmm. the two zones. But due to density stipulations, they actually couldn't put more Mm -hmm. than 12 in that portion of the property. Okay. So the site plan is approved by the Planning Commission. Does that mean that things are going to move ahead or are people moving out? Like, what is the the next steps here? Yeah, so most likely, um, I mean, I do know that all of the current tenants have have been now notified in both English and Spanish. And one of uh, their frustrations earlier had been that they had not been notified and had had to find out about this through the March Mm -hmm. 10th planning commission meeting. So there's a lot of frustration around that. Since then, they've all been notified. As you can see, one man, Jeffrey Reed, has already started moving. Um, It looks like Josh Godfrey had said that moving would probably happen and and construction around late summer, early fall. Mm. Um, I believe that some of the, so the broad site plan was approved. Some of the smaller kind of construction plans still need to be approved. And and Godfrey did express some financial concerns due to construction costs and Mm. material costs, whether it could be built. But there are no kind of immediate roadblocks to this development. Okay, no immediate roadblocks, but still not like a clear timeline and path to construction. So it sounds like this one resident is already starting to move out. What about, you know, other residents? I mean, there is no concrete plan, so there is no 
so-called eviction date just right. yet. So my, my coworker Ashley Bunton spoke with a few of the residents, and I think that the two that she spoke with both said that they were just planning to probably leave. They were very doubtful that they could find anything nearly as affordable in town. Related to relocation, you know, are there any plans by developers at this point to rehouse residents in these u- units? And so, how? Mm-hmm. There were... Godfrey said he had explored for a while the prospect of buying more property in town to move the trailers to. He said he was actually in touch with folks at Moab City about even potentially moving empty trailers or trailers with tenants to Walnut Lane. I I think Walnut Lane fell through just due to various legalities. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of a spider's web um, of complication already and probably doesn't need this added layer. And Corey Shirtloff, who's Moab City's planner, had Mm -hmm. said that the plan to buy new property had also fallen through just because of the increasing um, value of property around here. So there were attempts, and I know that Godfrey's still working with the Moab Valley Multicultural Center, Um, But I don't know if there are super concrete, holistic plans right now about rehousing these tenants. Thank you for taking us through this. Uh, What else would you like to highlight in the Times Independent this week? As folks may have seen, there were two small fires here on Saturday early evening slash late afternoon. The larger blaze, I believe, had started at the uh, Moab Charter School, a shed behind the charter school, actually. And interestingly, Fire Chief TJ Brewer said the cause was due to a chemical reaction from an expired science kit. What? So keep an eye on your science kits folks because those can uh apparently spontaneously combust wow okay and apparently the charter school was closed on monday and then there was also a secondary i think smaller fire in a wooded area kind of behind desert bistro near mill creek I mean, they were able to extinguish that fairly quickly before it did too much damage. And notably, that's also roughly the area where Team Rubicon was doing fire mitigation just a couple weeks ago. So, I, you know, I don't know if they were able to mitigate this exact area, but it just reinforces the need for that type of work around here. Does our fire department know what caused that fire behind the Desert Bistro? Uh, not that I know of, no. Okay. Um, all right. Two fires on Saturday afternoon within, you know, a short time period of each other. Just about the same time, I believe. Yeah, just happy everybody's safe. Where else do you want to take us? Yeah, so just quick shout out that the opening of Utah State University Moab's new campus is today at 3.30 p.m. on Aggie Boulevard. All members of the public are welcome to attend. There will be activities and events and also the creation of a time capsule, which will be reopened in 50 years in 2072. That's very exciting. Um, I'm sure a lot of listeners will be down there this afternoon. And finally, Sophia, um, the Times Independent, there's a big article about unaffiliated candidacy in Grand County. What can you tell us about this? Absolutely. So as I'm sure listeners know, there are county elections this year for various positions. And these races for the first time in 30 years are partisan, meaning that the political party of the candidates are publicized. They're not private. Okay. Um, but interestingly, there are 13 candidates running for a partisan seat. And only three of those are actually registered with either of the major or any political party. Everybody else is unaffiliated. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So and that was kind of one of the big things that came out of um, um, state sort of mandate to change our form of government or update our form of government, depending on your perspective. (laughs) (laughs) And one of them was uh, political candidacy. But yet, like you said, only three are registered as uh, what? As Republicans. There was one Democrat running, uh, Bob O'Brien, but he's actually suspended his campaign. It was a bit of a crowded race. Okay. Um, And he said he wanted to make room for another candidate, Emily Campbell. Do you mind going through, you know, what uh, seats are up um, this election season, if you can? I think I have it off the top of my head, but you okay. may want to fact check me on okay. this. So the, the seats that I remember are county attorney, 
Okay. County clerk auditor. Uh, and then three county commission seats, so districts four, five, and one at-large seat. And then sheriff. And I believe that is the end of the partisan races. There are also two school board seats up for election, but only one person is running for each of those, and those are nonpartisan. Sophia Fisher, staff writer at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Researchers along the Colorado Plateau are studying how native seeds can help restore landscapes after events like wildfire. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News has more. So this project kind of starts with when land is disturbed, like really large swaths of land. And so that can be through a wildfire burn or um, it's like trampled by something else. And so when land is disturbed like that, it can really quickly get out of control. So like invasive plants could take over or erosion will wipe it away. Mm -hmm. And so for land managers like the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management, the question becomes like, how can we restore this land? And more importantly, how can we restore this land with native seeds? Mm-hmm. And so when you have that much land to restore, the way that they do it is by dropping like thousands of seeds from a helicopter. And so um, wow. seeds can be kind of tricky and especially here because we're in a drought and typically seeds need um, kind of wet and warm to germinate and so getting the wet Mm -hmm. right is really hard so there's this project at the canyonlands research center called the germination for restoration information and decision making or grid Um, and they're trying to discover which native seeds will do the best under these conditions where Mm -hmm. they're dropped from a helicopter and then they're subjected to drought conditions for a really long time. So I talked to Daniel Winkler, who is a research ecologist at the USGS um, Biological Science Center, Mm -hmm. and he's running this project. And he said that the project started in 2018, and it's running in two sites. One is in Flagstaff, and one is at CRC, which is kind of near Indian Creek. So having these two sister sites kind of allows the researchers to subject their seeds to a lot of different conditions Um, and so they have this drought garden where they have seeds in different plots and they have um, like different levels of water and they're just basically trying to see which seeds will germinate the best are they are they germinating the seeds under different conditions yeah yeah so some of the seeds are subjected to average drought conditions and some are above average and some are lower than average Um, but the first year that this project took place basically none of the seeds germinated because it was really hot and all the water was evaporating really quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, So since then, they've started diversifying the seed mix to see if maybe the seeds could help each other Mm. germinate. Um, They've also been playing around with um, trying to germinate the seeds at different times of year to see, you know, maybe these seeds like germinate the best in monsoon season Mm -hmm. or maybe they need specific conditions. Mm -hmm. Daniel was also saying that it's really fun for him to do this project because it's the best type of way to do science that's meaningful. Mm -hmm. And with this drought garden, it's like he can design a new experiment to answer all sorts of questions about germination in the desert. Like how will climate change Mm -hmm. affect this if it gets, you know, hotter and less wet and how do invasive species affect Mm -hmm. germination and how does like where native seeds are collected, how does that affect when they germinate and how they germinate? 
Oh, interesting. And like you've been saying throughout, these are native seeds. Yeah. So they are doing the project right now with um, rice grass, squirrel tail, mm-hmm. Rocky Mountain bee plant, and firecracker pensimmon. And they were doing it with globe mallow, but the globe mallow was really hard to germinate. One of my favorites to see out in the desert, the globe mallow. Yeah. So you said there are these two companion sites. This mm-hmm. project is likely going to be ongoing. Yeah. Because it's research. Right. But will there get to a point where they say, hey, we found a great mix and we're just going to throw it somewhere? <laughs> yeah. It's just kind of like... Every year that they're updating the experiment, they're also letting land managers like the Forest Service and the BLM know like which ones are doing the best. And Uh then if they find something that's doing really well, then they'll keep um, building on that to find the best. Thanks, Ali. And Mm. let's move on. Um, You said that Gallery Moab has a couple uh, things going on, or at least a profile in the Moab Sun News. What's happening there? Yeah, so every month, um, Gallery Moab picks two artists to showcase. Um, One of the artists is always like a part of the gallery already, and then one is kind of a guest artist Mm -hmm. that they bring in. But for April, the guest artist is Louise Seeler, who makes these really playful and whimsical paintings. Um, And the featured artist is Nick Eason, who's a really talented wood sculptor. So I talked to both of them. And they basically just said they're very excited to share their art. Mm. Um, Louise is really wonderful. She said um, that the purpose of her art is to make people happy. Mm. And if she can bring a smile to people's face, then everything's worthwhile. And Nick Eason had a really interesting start with his woodworking. He was in the Army. And after the Army, he joined the National Park Service, which is kind of where he discovered this love of wildlife. Um, And he picked up wood carving on a whim. He was in the library in Chicago, and he just found a book about whittling. And so... (laughs) There was a chunk of wood in the alley near his house, (laughs) and he already owned a pocket knife, and so he just started carving, and he ended up really loving it. What an interesting journey. Mm -hmm. I feel like you brought us some interesting stories of um, two photographers last week, and now we have more interesting ways that people are finding their way to their different art forms. Yeah, I mean, the art community here is amazing. For this tiny town, there are so many artists. So they're featured in Gallery Moab. Does that mean that their work is on display this this whole month, pretty much? Yeah, yeah. So their work will be on display this whole month. Um, and there will also be a reception during the April Art Walk, which is on April 9th, um, where the artists will be there and talking to people and answering questions. Neat. And there's more going on. April is proving to be a busy month. Um, mm-hmm. CK Venn Family Crisis and Resource Center has a ton of stuff going on, and the sun wrote about it. Can you give us some highlights? from this yeah so april is sexual assault awareness month and so ck vin which is a moab nonprofit that assists survivors of domestic and sexual violence um they've planned three events to honor victims of sexual violence and also spark conversations about what we can do mm-hmm. to prevent it of the 830 clients that ck vin has served in the past five years 267 of those which is about 32 percent experience sexual abuse and of the 363 clients served in the last year 126 of those have had experienced sexual abuse and abigail taylor who's the executive director at ck vin said that she thinks that that number is lower than Mm -hmm. the reality um, Mm -hmm. because many individuals 
may not remember abuse from their childhood or Mm. they might have blacked out due to a trauma response. Mm. So during this month, uh, Sea Caven really wants to just garner awareness for the community Mm -hmm. for like what can be done and also how prevalent this is in our community. The first event is a temporary exhibit at the Moab Museum called What Were You Wearing? which displays the stories of people in Moab's community who were sexually assaulted alongside recreations of the clothing items they were wearing at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this exhibit is meant to destroy the victim-blaming mentality that commonly surrounds sexual assault, Mm -hmm. showing that it can really, like, happen to anybody. And so Morgan Flynn, who's the outreach manager at Seacaven, said that they've had a lot of really powerful submissions and she thinks it's going to be really impactful. Wow. So this is coming from, you know, Moab residents or people in this area. Yeah. And Morgan also said that she feels really grateful that people in our community feel safe enough to share their stories. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can feel really scary to have that type of information like on display. So the exhibit will be on display from April 4th to the 18th at the Moab Museum. Okay, so this exhibit is happening, and they're also having a grill out. Yeah, um, so the Campfire Cookout will start at 6 p.m. on April 15th at Old City Park. This is, like, more meant to create a sense of community and provide a space for survivors to tell their stories and also discuss Mm -hmm. prevention efforts. Mm -hmm. So Abigail said that it's really easy for survivors to hold on to their shame, and Mm -hmm. they find it much harder to release. Um, if they think that they're the only one. And Mm -hmm. so providing a sense of community for people to connect with each other and also realize that, you know, more people have survived this Mm -hmm. um, is really important. Allison Hartford, staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for our weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest local coverage. You can find the stories mentioned today in the show notes of the news at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to the KZMU News Podcast. Thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.